if I'm a I'm, I'm a girl taking taking ballet classes in you know in my suburb of Iowa where I live, and outside of the ballet studio, I get nothing but social support and affirmation. Right, I'm doing I'm doing something appropriately feminine, mm-hmm. um, and no one bats an eye. But if I'm a boy going to that same dance school, uh, the second I step outside of the dance studio, I am up against very very rigid definitions of masculinity. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Chloe Angel about her book Turning Point, which is a look at the realities of ballet. Now, you're going to have to trust me when I say that this book is incredibly incisive, not just about the dance world, but about youth sports, about young girls in youth sports, about gender in youth sports. Uh, it, it's just there, there's so much that my mind is just bubbling about that connects to the normal beats that we talk about on this pod. So please, please, please listen up and check this out. It's great stuff. Also, I've got some choice words about Donald Trump's Saturday plans. Uh, which took place a few days ago. Just my thoughts about them for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Chloe Angel. How did you come to this topic of all topics? Um, I danced from a very young age. I did I did ballet, I did jazz, I did lots of styles of dance. And um, like a lot of girls who start with ballet, uh, it was made clear to me pretty early on that my my body was wrong for ballet. Um, but like a lot of girls who start ballet early on, I kept dancing. I kept doing jazz and lyrical and fossey style Broadway jazz. And what you're taught as a dancer is that ballet is the foundation that underpins all of those styles. And so you keep doing ballet, even if you know that you are not going to be, you know, a professional or advanced ballet dancer. So I did ballet all the way through my my teen years and into my early 20s. And then when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City, which is sort of one of the centers of gravity for, for dance in the world and certainly in the US. And so uh, I was able to, to watch some of the world's best ballet dancers and was able to sort of shoehorn um, ballet into my journalism beat and ended up on a self-made ballet beat at HuffPost, which is how I started reporting on some of the less glamorous but to me more interesting parts of the ballet world, things like labour issues and workplace discrimination and, you know, what it's like to work with your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-husband or ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend because there are a lot of couples and dissolved couples in the ballet world. All these workplace issues um, that allowed me to write about dance for a non-dance audience um, and find the sort of relatable threads um, beyond the glamour and beyond the mystique that would make a non-dance audience interested in ballet. And so that's how I came to to think that there was enough for a book here. And that's how I came to write the book. Mm. You write about the, the rigid traditions of ballet in your book. For, for our audience who hasn't read the book and or is very unfamiliar with ballet, what are those traditions? 
Ballet is nothing but rigid tradition. I mean, we're talking about an art form that began in the, the French courts in, in the 15th century. Um, and so there are traditions for everything, for how you enter a classroom, how you begin a class, how you dress for the class, how you move during the class, the order in which you move through exercises in the class. A ballet class doesn't end until you bow or curtsy to the teacher and they bow or curtsy back to you. I mean, that's the level of sort of tradition that we're talking. And then you have traditions for the kinds of stories that we tell, um, sort of very old fairy tales that get told again and again, your Giselle, your Swan Lake, um, your Firebird, these old stories that that are kept alive um, because the art form is so beholden to tradition. And then you have traditions like who's allowed to do what in ballet. And that's everything from how companies are structured from the, a very a very rigid hierarchical structure with lots and lots of people at the bottom in the quarter ballet and then a narrowing number of people at the top until you get to a, a principal artist or a, or, or a prima. Um, and you have traditions about who's allowed to dance what roles and even, you know, what shoes you're allowed to dance those roles in. So women dance on point and men don't. Um, and those kinds of sort of rigid gendered hierarchies filter from the top all the way down into your very first ballet class as a as a three-year-old mm. now for a, a wannabe misty copeland what are the difference between the expectations for a wannabe misty copeland versus a wannabe mikhail barishnikov isn't it interesting isn't it interesting that the the sort of archetype of the male ballet dancer is someone who hasn't danced at a, at a you know at a high at dance ballet at a high level in like 40 years yeah can because i mean we can name we can i mean you can name lots of working women dancers who might be familiar to to a, a, ca- a casual viewer um but but barishnikov is the is the reference point he hasn't he hasn't danced professionally since like the late 80s and he mm. is the reference point for men because the differences are there are so many women and so many aspiring girls who want to be ballet dancers, who want to be the next Misty Copeland, and they outnumber boys in ballet classes 20 to 1. Um, so the differences in expectations are expectations are a lot higher um, on the girls. Demands are a lot higher on the women than they are on the boys and the men simply because there's such a glut of girls and women and such a dearth of boys and men, which means that, you know, boys, boys can be, can be held to much higher standards of both skill and comportment or behavior than the girls are where, you know, they're, you're always looking for a reason to strike a girl from the roster. You're always looking for reasons to keep a boy on the roster. Mm. Interesting. Now who has the, are you saying, because one would assume just based upon the book and what our discussion thus far, that being a, a woman ballerina is far more difficult than being a man in terms of expectations and the like. But you're saying that for a man, sometimes the standards are more difficult. No, I'm saying that the, no, the, the standards are lower. It's, it's, Look, it I, is easier. I, it is easier inside the ballet world to be a boy, but it depends on how you do. Yes. 
it depends on how you define easy and difficult, right? Because if I'm a, I'm, I'm a girl taking, taking ballet classes in, you know, in my suburb of Iowa where I live and outside of the ballet studio, I get nothing but social support and affirmation, right? I'm doing, I'm doing something appropriately feminine mm-hmm. um, and no one bats an eye. But if I'm a boy going to that same dance school, uh, the second I step outside of the dance studio, I am up against very, very rigid definitions of masculinity um, that will have some follow-up questions when I tell them that I take and love ballet. Um, and that, and to be clear, that's not a knock on Iowa where I live. It's it's true all over the country um, that you know our ideas of what is appropriately feminine and appropriately masculine make it incredibly difficult for boys who who do dance training of any kind, but especially of ballet um, and the rates of, of boys, um, the rates of bullying in boys who, who dance because they dance are staggering. Um, and so, you know, the boys might have an easier time of it inside the dance studio, but outside of it, um, they're really up against it in a way that girls aren't. Mm. So what kind of voices or organizing are we starting to see against these kinds of rigid norms that you've described? There have been voices for decades, um, the the Dance Theatre of Harlem, which is one of the premier dance companies in the country, um, was founded in response to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and it was founded mm-hmm. as a place for black dancers to do the kinds of classical ballet that they had been excluded from for a very long time. And that company is still going, still going strong. Um, and, you know, on the shoulders of that, you have people like Misty Copeland, um, and you have um, you have people like a young dancer named Ashton Edwards, who dances for Pacific Northwest Ballet in um, in Seattle. And Ashton is a non-binary dancer who decided that they wanted to be able to dance on point and take men's classes, and has been allowed through that through that ballet company's school and company to to learn point. Um, and is going to be appearing on stage this season as a swan in Swan Lake on point in a white tutu, the whole thing, which is just would have been honestly unthinkable. I'm going to say even like three years ago, even five and especially five, 10 years ago. And so you have voices all throughout the history of ballet desperately trying to pull the art form out of its traditions and into a, into a place where it can be relevant to life today um and then you have um you have heavily unionized ballet companies all of all nine of the top 10 ballet companies by budget in the u.s are unionized they're a part of agma um and uh they have fairly strong union protections um that that mandate all kinds of things from like the temperature of the theater to um, how long their, their breaks are required to be to how long they can be made to rehearse on a performance day. Um, dancers are, are quite well represented in the labor movement, which I think is great and surprising to a lot of people. Wow. That, that's, that's amazing. That Are people surprised? I mean, as you've spoken about this book to hear about the amount of self-organizing that exists in the world of ballet. Yes, and I also think it is it is, you know, as with most organizing, it is a, a continuing struggle to to get to get people organized, to get them unionized. And also it goes it goes against 
a lot of the characteristics that are rewarded in dancers and particularly in girls and in women ballet you know rewards silence and conformity and obedience which are not necessarily traits that you know jive well with unionizing and organizing for your rights <laughs> um but because there's such a strong tradition um of of unionizing in ballet some of that is sort of built in once you become a professional but I think for for a lot of dancers it you know competition is so fierce um and you can be so desperate and so grateful for any break that you get that it can be really difficult to 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 voice concerns and make demands Mm. you know it's interesting before I even picked up your book, I thought in my head, I bet that the comparisons to what we've seen in gymnastics is very striking. Mm-hmm. And th- there are similarities, but there are also some serious differences too. Can, can can you speak a little bit about that? About We've seen so much in gymnastics that's, a, that's revolved around the exploitation of women, both physically and sexually. We've seen uh, really for the first time, uh, women begin to organize. That's a difference, of course, but like for the first time, women begin to organize in gymnastics to, to speak out against their conditions. Um, but what, what similarities do you see between those two worlds? One is the, the emphasis on youth and on sort of uh, early specialization that you see in gymnastics, sort of early specialization in the activity to the exclusion of basically everything else, including in a lot of cases, regular schooling. That's certainly one thing that they have in common. I mean, what we're starting to see in gymnastics is longer careers and older gymnasts, but for a long time um, you were done in gymnastics by the time you were 18, 19, 20. Um, You get a little bit more time in ballet uh, for, for women, you get a little bit more time for men, especially men tend to have longer careers in ballet, just like they do in gymnastics. Um, you see, you know, 37 year old male Olympians in gymnastics and you're, it's very normal to see a 37 year old man on stage in ballet too. Um, but the focus on early specialization, um, and that sort of identity formation around the activity is certainly something that they have in common. I mean, you have in you know, you have kids training or practicing or rehearsing, you know, 15, 20, 25 hours a week before they before they hit middle school. Um, and that's that's what they have in common. I I I, w- I was a gymnast for a while and I was I think at my height I was 12 years old and training 21 hours a week and that was normal. Um, and that those kinds of hours are also fairly normal for for dance students. Um, the i mean the the sexual abuse thing is obviously also something that they have in common the difference is that sexual abuse and exploitation is sort of built in to the traditions of ballet in a way that uh that it's not in gymnastics and not only is it built in but it's sort of out in the open um you know every time you see a, a painting by Degas you've got to remember that those dancers you know, as glamorous as they look from the distance of 150 years, those dancers um, were impoverished and exploited. And the performances that they, that Degas painted, didn't begin until the wealthy benefactors, the wealthy male benefactors, had had time to go backstage 
and scout for their next mistress. Um, and, you know, for a lot of those women, that's what dancing ballet represented. It was a chance to sort of to escape poverty um, by by finding, you know, a, a, a rich male benefactor. Um, and in turn, the the institution of the ballet depended on those benefactors showing up and buying tickets and then going backstage and, and scouting for mistresses. Um, and so in that way, the kind of sexual exploitation and the sort of economic precarity of the women is sort of out in the open in ballet, um, well-known uh, and common knowledge and like well-known enough to be painted by Degas <laughs> um, in a way that it, that it isn't in gymnastics. It's sort of built into the, to the history. It's part of the fabric of the art form in a way that it, that it isn't in gymnastics. Wow. Now um, that, that's really helpful in, in helping frame this. Um, I got to ask, I saw, you know, I was doing a little Googling online about your book and I saw that you'd put yourself out there to speak to uh, dance schools. <laughs> and I wanted to know, first of all, if a uh, two-part question, if you were ever taken up on that offer. And the second question is, what do you have any sense of the, of the response from the dancing community to your book? I have had a number of dance schools take me up on it. I've been doing these sort of free virtual events at dance schools um, since, since the book came out. And I've mostly been speaking to teachers um, and to parents of, of more advanced ballet students. And the, the response at those events has been, you know, fairly positive. It's obviously a self-selective, self-selecting audience. And you've got to, you've got to believe that ballet has some problems that need to be fixed before you bring in a speaker who's going to talk about ballet's problems. Um, but my sense of the response has been, um, you know, the word, the word that, always comes to mind is catharsis. Um, there are a lot of former dancers who have read the book and sort of recognized their experiences and felt exactly what I wanted them to feel when I was writing it, which was seen and understood and validated um, and assured that it wasn't you. You're not crazy. You didn't fail. The ballet failed you, right? In, fail, in, in, in not making room for your body or your gender expression um, or your need to be listened to when you expressed concerns um, or your desire to dance anything other than, you know, a heterosexual love story set in the 1840s, in not making room for you in that way, ballet failed you and not the other way around. I think a lot of former dancers are walking around with a story in their heads of, of them and ballet. And the story is I failed. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't thin enough. I wasn't willing to, you know, break myself for ballet. And part of what I wanted to do with this book was to give them an alternative version of events, you know, a, a different narrative. And what's that's, it's very heartening to me that so many former dancers feel that sense of catharsis in, in reading the book. Um, I think it's really common for people to, to quit ballet, to leave the world and to realize in slow, piecemeal fashion, oh, that thing that happened to me when I was 14 probably wasn't okay. Or, oh, that way that that, that dance teacher talked to me about my body was probably not okay. And I think I'm, I think I might've had, am I allowed to swear? Of course. I, to curse? I think I might've had a, I think I might've had a fucked up experience. And mm. like, 
that that slow motion realization over the course of years and years is very common. And part of what I wanted to do with this book was to sort of put it all in one place so that people could sort of have that realization all at once and also not on their own. You know, I think it's very it's very alienating to come out of an all-consuming culture and realize slowly that you are mistreated by that culture. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book was to make those people feel less alone and also give them sort of a comprehensive brief <laughs> so that it wasn't a piecemeal realization, but an all at once like, oh, I did have a really fucked up experience and here is here is all the reasons why. Mm. Would you let your own child do ballet at this point? Uh, and would your decision be affected at all by whatever gender they'd been assigned at birth? I don't know. And I really, I want, I want to know. I want, I'm not a person who enjoys uh, an absence of answers and an absence of a plan. I also don't have a child, to be clear. So yeah. there are a couple, a couple of steps that need to be completed before we get to this decision. Um, uh, I I would want to put my child or any child in a ballet school that takes um, gender neutral pedagogy really seriously, that is genuinely and like unconditionally affirming of all body types, um, that has teachers whose whose teaching style is grounded in like science and anatomy and not in tradition. Um, I would want to put my kid or any kid in a ballet school that does not privilege ballet, which happens to be like the whitest and wealthiest of all the dance forms above all other ballet styles. You know, I was taught that ballet is the technical foundation of all other styles. That's not necessarily true. Um, I was taught that it was sort of the pinnacle of all ballet, of all dance styles. And that's certainly not true. Um, and I would I would want to put my kid or any kid in a school that takes, um, you know, sexual harassment and sexual abuse and the blur, the very common blurring of the boundaries between appropriate teaching and abusive teaching very, very seriously. And unless I could find a school that did all of those things, uh, no, I would I would not sign my child up for ballet, regardless of regardless of their gender. Um, your, your second question is one that I had actually not considered until I was like on the spot at a live book event. Um, and, and the, the person asked me, um, I think I would be more likely to put my child into ballet if, uh, if they identified as a boy. Um, but I would want to be really careful about the kinds of sort of special treatment that boys, uh, are given in the ballet world, because if you're not careful, you know, it, it can be a real recipe for male entitlement. And I certainly don't want that for, for my child. You know, one of the reasons I asked you that question is before I had kids, I wrote a lot about youth sports and mm -hmm. people would ask me that question. Mm -hmm. um, like, would you I mean, let a girl, your daughter do football? Yeah, things like yeah. that. I, I, all variations of, of, of that. And um, and I just, I was I'm very struck by how similar your answer is to my answer, even though we're talking about, um, you know, diff different activities. I mean, I think it's, I think we've come a long way in, you know, since since Title IX, we have come a long way in normalizing girls doing traditionally masculine activities. I think we have made less ground in normalizing boys doing traditionally feminine activities. And so, you know, 
I think it makes, I would be, I would certainly be interested if my child expressed interest um, in letting him take, take ballet classes. Um, but I think we've gotten a lot better at accepting tomboys than we have femboys, you know? Absolutely. I think a similarity in both of our answers to this is like, and I think this is very important, is that parents have some degree of, if not oversight, at least hyper-awareness about how their child is being coached or trained. And also, and how do you do that without... Um, being a stage parent or a... Exactly. Exa- or a, or a, that, that, that dad on the sidelines. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> don't want to be that. Um, I, I know that dad, but I don't want to be that. <laughs> um, and if, if you just... Pr- People, um, you know, you're a movie person, and I, this is just something I kept thinking as I was reading the book. Um, what? And I, so I apologize if this question's a little bit trite, or if you've gotten it eight trillion times. But what, what's your thoughts slash analysis about the film Black Swan? You know, the interesting thing about Black Swan is that most professional dancers loathe it, mm-hmm. and part of the reason they don't like it. And part of the reason I also object to it is that it makes it it treads some really, really tired ground between sort of ballet, perfection, madness, obsession, um, and hyper competitiveness, which, you know, these these are not these are not new themes, these are not new ideas. Um I don't think that story or that movie told us anything about ballet that we haven't heard a million times or that like a new Amazon series that the trailer just dropped this week is going to tell us anything new either. It's the same like mild lesbianism, competitive female friendship, psychosis, obsession, perfection, the sacrifices you make for greatness. I mean, it's just the same retreading that same ground over and over again. And it is so the sort of individual psychoses of fictional dances are just so much less interesting to me than the structural and cultural abuses of the entire dance world. Um, and I get that that's less sexy, <laughs> um, and, uh, less, you know, h- harder to translate onto screen. But, you know, I think the more we focus, the more we focus on like the individual obsessive perfectionist psyches of, very photogenic fictional dances, the less we focus on the like structural abuses that, that get them there in the first place. Um, and I, I, I think most movies about dance portray the kind of, um, the kind of suffering that ballet encourages as sexy, aspirational, glamorous, and above all worth it. And I, I disagree with all of those characterizations. Mm. And, and and also, like you've written this book, it, it's amazing. Everybody should read it, whether you're familiar with this world or not. Probably, Thank you. if you're not familiar with this world, I would recommend this. Um, what, what's next for you, though, in regards to this beat? Because you know, Huff Poe doesn't do that kind of work anymore. Um, you, this is clearly an ongoing story. How are you going to continue to be the the watchful eye on this industry? I don't know. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I don't know. I'm 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 working on some other ballet-centered writing projects right now that are fiction and not nonfiction, mm. um, and a lot of the same themes um, come up in in that work as do in Turning Point. Um, but you know. I came to this book as one of many people who writes about dance. Um, there are lots of watchful eyes out there. And so um, my hope is that this this book is my contribution to a, a pretty large body of work um, and that if I take my eye off this ball for a little while, there will be plenty of other people doing this work. I'm certainly not alone. Okay, and then just lap. Lap, two quick last questions. First, mm-hmm. your favorite movie about dancing? Oh, I love all my children equally. That's not true. I hate Black Swan. Um, <laughs> Ask you about the one you hate, but what, what are some of the ones you recommend? Uh, I don't think you can do better than Center Stage, mm. um, which is a, a movie from 2000. Um, that is set at what is essentially the School of American Ballet, which is the the elite feeder school for New York City Ballet. It goes by a different name in the movie, of course. Um, but that movie features really high-quality dancing that's just beautifully filmed, um, filmed by people who know how to film dance. Um, and obviously, you know, technology for filming dance has only gotten better in the last 20 years. So you've probably seen better dance filming on Instagram last week, but by 2000 standards, it's really well done. You've got gorgeous dancers from the, from American ballet theater and New York city ballet, just doing what they do best. Um, and then also acting, which is maybe not what they do best, but they're trying really hard. Um, and yeah, I just don't think you can do, but it is an it is an iconic dance movie that dancers actually do love. Oh, that sounds that sounds really great. That sounds really yeah. great. So we've got a recommendation out for folks. And and just lastly, I always ask people this, Chloe, when they're guests on the show, what what music did you listen to when working on this project? Either what played in the background while you were writing, or what maybe you listened to when you took a break. What was your sort of musical muse as you wrote this book? Um, I had two playlists. One is, uh, mostly movie soundtracks. Um, mostly, uh, I, I, I can't work to anything with lyrics in the background. So lots of, lots of sort of calm ambient, uh, movie, movie scores. Um, nothing intense like, uh, Inception or, uh, yeah, just like nice twinkly Pride and Prejudice style musical scores um and I think I actually made that playlist available publicly if anyone wants to go write a book to that um and the other one I listened to um I listened to Giselle and Swan Lake the the scores for Giselle and Swan Lake a lot while I was writing particularly while I was writing about those ballets um and then when I needed a break uh I would lie on the floor of my office and listen to the soundtrack from um Our Planet which is a really great Netflix documentary series. Um, And uh, yeah, just like say, okay, you get to lay on the ground for the next three and a half minutes while this song plays. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Love getting the inside view of the process, not just you. It's a, it's a lot of lying on the floor and crying. I'm not going to lie to you. Ah, 
I mean, well, write, writing writing a book in the middle of a pandemic is a lot of lying on the floor and crying. Yeah, well, if if uh, if one tends to believe, and I don't necessarily believe this, but if one tends to believe that great art comes out of pain and tears, then mission accomplished, because the book is fantastic. Thank you. I, I appreciate wow. that. It was not too much pain and not too much tears, and I also believe that you don't have to suffer to create great art. Yes, yes, we, we are in total agreement about that. But <laughs> I'm so grateful that the product that's come out of this out of this endeavor. Uh, Chloe Angel, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. All right, now I've got some choice words about this past weekend. Okay, look, there was much hand-wringing and even outright mockery over Donald Trump's plans for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Unlike Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden, Trump wasn't at a memorial or a plane crash site or meeting with surviving family members. Trump wasn't going for the solemn. Instead, alongside his son, Don Jr., Trump provided commentary for a boxing match. These two heretofore unrecognized geniuses of the sweet science did MAGA-friendly play-by-play from the Hard Rock Cafe in Hollywood, Florida before a raucous, maskless crowd. As for the fight itself, it was a repellent affair even by boxing standards. The highlight was 58-year-old former champion and 1984 Olympian Evander Holyfield. This wasn't a boxing card, it was a crime scene. Yet as Trump Sr. said to hype the contest, I love great fighters and great fights. You won't want to miss this special event. The reaction was beyond critical, calling Trump's choice to take part in such frivolity undignified on such a grim day of remembrance. But this rush to the fainting couch misses the point. And I'm not talking about the fact that it is still a waste of time to chide Trump's boorishness. This is someone who tried to overturn an election. Do you really think he can be shamed for thumbing his nose at 9-11? But beyond the commentary, it's predictable waste of breath. I'd argue that for all of his childish taunts, transparent insecurity, and third grade grasp of nuance, Trump is also incredibly, even wickedly good at connecting with the lizard brain of his followers and most authoritarian aspirants are. Trump knows that there is a section of this country that thinks all of these presidents are at best phonies and at worst mendacious traffickers of children. They aren't elder statesmen, they are enemies. And why would their leader mimic the actions of such foes? Trump also understands the visceral thrill of boxing, 
a blood sport where someone could in a moment be knocked unconscious or worse. Trump's followers probably loved that he was watching a boxing match instead of going to Shanksville. Remember that for all the Americans appalled by 9-11, there were some who were energized by it. Like the Toby Keith song, courtesy of the red, white, and blue, there were Americans just itching to bring the so-called clash of civilizations to the Muslim world. Quote, because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way, as Toby Keith sang to sold out crowds. Now, 20 years later, they don't want to be solemn. They want to go beat someone up. Think about Trump lick spittle and right-wing power broker Glenn Beck and his 9-12 movement, which posited that the day after 9-11, the country was never better because we were united with a clear focus for blood and revenge. This is who Trump has an instinctual ability to speak to, like few national politicians this country have ever seen. Trump is now thoroughly confident that he won't be held accountable for his actions on January 6th. His marriage is a mockery. His reputation among the Hollywood elite he once courted is in tatters. All that's left for him and his defeated dead-enders is revenge. 9-11 is still their day to feel and feed that sense of vengeance. Except now Trump and his media cohorts are targeting their fellow Americans for an assorted list of offenses and manufactured outrages, ranging from COVID-19 mask rules to teaching about slavery. Whether or not Trump is building his base for a 2024 run or is trying to maintain his status as a GOP power broker, and it's the former and we all know it, his aim is the same, to speak to people's worst instincts for his own purposes. That he chose an embarrassing sideshow of a boxing match in order to do this is an indictment of boxing itself. Famed boxing writer Jimmy Cannon once called boxing the red light district of sports. You can keep your speeches in crocodile tears. This is where Trump is truly at home. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. Look, I have a book coming out today. As you're hearing this, Tuesday, September 14th. It's called The Kaepernick Effect, where I highlight the stories of young people who took a knee during the anthem, young athletes, and how it affected their communities. So the Just Stand Up Award, I'm giving it to every person who allowed me to interview them for my book. Thank you so very much. Your courage built a road from the athletic field to the summer of 2020, which was the time of the largest protests in the history of the United States. And I really do appreciate all of you for being part of this book. 
If I haven't sent you a signed copy yet, hit me up because I have sent out dozens now to people. But if for some reason you didn't get one, let me know. And I'm specifically talking to the folks I interviewed for the book now. So if you're listening to this podcast, get in touch with me. Man, I'm proud of this book. I hope people who listen to this podcast buy it and support it. All the funds that I would earn from this book, they're going to an organization called Serve Your City, uh, which is in D.C. It's a mutual aid organization. So I'm trying to pay forward the courage of these young people. So please buy this book, The Kaepernick Effect. The Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. It's just I'm so sick of this. It goes to the tough guy unvaccinated football player and their act their act where they act like they're so tough they're not going to get a vaccination it annoys me so i wrote this about one of those players indianapolis colts quarterback carson wentz that's what i wrote in an article this week people can check it out at the nation and it's how i feel in a sentence or two i wrote carson wentz represents a small minority of nfl players who have taken toxic masculinity and turned it into a medical condition. They act like it's some kind of act of weakness to get a vaccination, that it makes them soft or some kind of crutch. For these self-described alphas, the P in Pfizer might as well stand for participation trophy. So all y'all unvaxxed NFL players who are acting like you're too tough for an injection uh, from Pfizer or Moderna, when in reality you take injections for Toriadol all the time or take Vicodin for to manage your pain. Come on, believe in community health care, please, and take advantage of the fact that you're in a position to be a role model for others who aren't getting the vaccine. Or just sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Hello, one last segment here on the Edge of Sports podcast, NFL predictions. We do them every year. I wasn't going to do them this year, but then a certain special someone who knows his football wanted to weigh in. I give you Jake Zyron. Jake, how you doing, sir? I'm doing very well today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I mean, the people want to know, who do you like in the Super Bowl this year? Let's start right there. Well, um, as my regular pick, like my... My standard most likely pick, I'm probably in the AFC side, I'm going to take the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen. He's going to win MVP this year. Put that in the books. Um, In the NFC, I really like the Green Bay Packers. I like the LA Rams. Of course, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they just won it last year. You're sounding a little wishy-washy, Jake. You're saying three teams. But who who will the Buffalo Bills play? They are going to face the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's going to be... Tom Brady versus the Bills yet again. He's been facing them his entire career, and now they're going to face off in the Super Bowl. I love the drama of that. If folks know my predictions, maybe you don't. I like the Baltimore Ravens against the Green Bay Packers with the Packers coming out on top. That's a good prediction. Thank you. I mean, I know everybody's down on the Ravens because of all the injuries, but, you know, in Lamar, we trust. That's where I am right now. I mean, I don't have, I don't have as much faith as I'm as you are, but... <laughs> I like the faith. Okay. So you said Josh Allen for MVP. Uh, let's just get your other picks down here if we could. Who's your defensive player of the year? Defensive player of the year. Well, I really like a guy from the AFC North. It's Miles Garrett. He's so explosive off the edge. He's going to do really well next to Javion Clowney on that line. Which line? You didn't say what team he's on. <laughs> the Cleveland Browns. Thank you. 
He's going to be so good this year. He's going to put up at least 15 and a half sacks in that 17-game season. Okay, very good. Excellent. And who is your offensive player of the year? Remember, in the NFL, there's the MVP award, which is going to Josh Allen, according to Jacob. Who do you like as your offensive player of the year? Now, this might be a bit biased, but with a bunch of energy, uh, sorry, a bunch of injuries at the running back position this year, I think Lamar Jackson will be an offensive player of the year as he's going to put up crazy numbers. He's going to do great in the passing game. He's going to do great in the rushing game. He's just going to be an all-around great player, and he's going to win Offensive Player of the Year. Excellent. Wow, I love that call of Lamar. And Lamar, we trust. You know that's the slogan here. All right, Offensive Player of the Year. You just said I'm sorry. I'm an Offensive Rookie of the Year. Offensive Rookie of the Year. I really like a bunch of guys. Oh, yeah, but you can't name a bunch of guys. I cannot name a bunch of guys. Some really high candidates that I do like, Najee Harris, Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance if he starts early. But I'm going to go with... The man, the myth, the legend for the Chicago Bears, Justin Fields. Nice. Love that pick, Justin Fields. Mm-hmm. So you have them. You have uh, their current number one starter, Andy Dalton. You have him going the way of the dodo bird mighty quick this mm-hmm. season. Yeah, he's going to come in sometime between week two or week four. He's going to really flash. He's going to be great this year. Wow, I love that pick. Um, it's gutsy, though, given that he's not mm-hmm. the starter to start the year, unlike a Trevor Lawrence. Uh, okay, and now let's go uh, defensive rookie of the year. Defensive rookie of the year. I really do like a lot of guys. Gregory Rousseau is looking great in camp in preseason. You have to say what teams these guys play for, Jake. <laughs> for the Buffalo Bills. Yes. Uh, Odafe Away for the Baltimore Ravens I do really love. Joe Tryon, I think, is my dark horse pick. Sounds like you're trying to not name somebody. <laughs> but my pick, he's looked amazing in preseason. Yeah, pick six, Patrick Sertain the second. Looks Ooh, great. Chief, for what team, Jake? <laughs> the Denver Broncos. <laughs> See, your issue, Jake, is you talk about this stuff like you're talking to me or another expert. We're talking to the people, man. We just did an interview about ballet. Our audience is very diverse. That is true. All right. Well, I love your picks, Jake. I think they're they're informed by just a tremendous amount of football intelligence. Thank you so much for appearing on the Edge of Sports podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Usually I do a section called Kaepernick Watch. Well, this week... Get my book. It's called The Kaepernick Effect. Please. Uh, For everybody out there listening, if you like the show, leave a rating. uh, Make a little note. uh, All that stuff helps a ton. Tell a friend. We depend on you to get the word out. It's a crowded marketplace. We think we're doing something special. But we depend on you, the listener, to spread the word. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.